This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au all right, well, we're going to be in Romans 5 this morning, so you, if you have a Bible, please keep it open, or if you have your Romans journaling Bibles, you might want to take them out now. And I believe that God has a message for every single person in this room this morning. There are some of you who have walked in this room today who are hurting and broken and struggling with life, and God wants to speak to you this morning. And there are some of you who that season lies ahead. And, uh, and God is preparing you for that this morning. So keep your Bibles open at Romans chapter 5 this morning. I'm going to pray for us as we hear God speak to us. Father, we thank you that you speak. We thank you that your word is living and active. And we pray now as we come before you in your word that you would please open our eyes, help us to see what you're saying to us, and fill us with hope. We thank you that you are the God of hope and we ask that we would be a people of hope because of the promises that you've given us, that they are certain, sure and true. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would minister to every single person in this room as your word is proclaimed. We know that you promised to make us more like Jesus. So please do a transforming work in our hearts now. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. Well, I'm, I'm assuming many of you have met our little nine-month-old baby, Levi. He is here at our first service. He normally is this morning. The rest of the family is at home in bed with bronchiolitis and snot and tissues and coughing and the whole works. And so um, that's, it's winter is here. We've, uh, we've got it early. We just got it in early, and we're hoping that we're done with it and have no more sickness. But my guess is we've just started early, and this is what it's going to be like till at least September. So you can pray for us. Um, but one of the things that um, has happened in our family is uh, we've had no sleep for the last nine months. In particular, my amazing wife, Tash, has been doing a grueling routine of waking up and settling and feeding. And in the last nine months, she hasn't slept in any longer stint than maybe four to five hours at best. Uh, and so they say that sleep deprivation is a form of torture. It certainly feels like that at times. I'm probably only a few hours in length behind Tash, but we're tired. Um, but there's a big difference between baby number three and baby number one. When Judah was born, uh, we were really sleep deprived. At the moment, we're kind of saying to each other, this is a season. We will get through this. This will pass. He will sleep through the night. Don't worry, this isn't going to be forever. Whereas with Judah, when it was baby number one, we were like, will we ever sleep again? Is this going to be forever? Is this real life? It was like so crippling because we had no idea what lay on the other side of six months or seven months or eight months or nine months. And now to be fair, some people's children don't sleep through the night till they're five. Um, but uh, there's a big difference between baby one and baby three. And the difference was hope. Right now, we have hope because we know that this season will end. It happened with the other two kids. It's going to happen with this one again. They will sleep through the night and one day you will sleep for longer than four hours in a row. And it's a miracle and it's a gift of grace and it's amazing. And we are claiming that promise that that will happen in the future. Hope, it has a, a very powerful ability to shift our perspective, to change the way that we think about something. And there's about a thousand people who have been attributed to the quote, without hope we die. 
Uh, I don't really know who ever first said that quote, but it seems like everyone has said that quote from ancient Greek philosophers to modern pop stars. Without hope, we die. And there's reality to that, is there not? Without hope, we settle. Without the hope of a holiday on the, on the horizon, our nine to five becomes really hard work. Without hope of a Friday afternoon, Monday morning is really dreary. Without hope of Christmas coming, the end of the year just seems to drag on and on and on. Without hope, we die. Without hope, we settle. And it seems to me if you start reading any number of blogs or just open your social media, what seems to be the tone of our generation is hopelessness. That people feel a deep sense of hopelessness about where things are at in our world. People have lost hope in institutions. They've lost hope in society. They've lost hope in the goodness of humanity, which newsflash the scriptures have been teaching all along from the very beginning since Genesis chapter 3. So wake up world, humanity is sinful and broken, right? We've lost hope in universities. We've lost hope in governments. We've lost hope in the environment being fixed and changed. We've lost hope and we live in a world and a culture that is crying out for some form of hope about our future. And so thankfully this morning, Romans chapter 5 is going to inject us with a healthy dose of hope because we need it, right? We need some hope in our lives because without hope, we settle. Without hope, we die. And so as Paul begins to launch into Romans chapter 5 here, he anticipates some questions off the back of these amazing promises that have come to us in Romans 3 and chapter 4. And the questions are this, how certain can I be that this declaration that I've been justified, that I've been made right, that I'm all good with God, how certain can I be that that won't go away? Or what, it, what does it say about my current experience of suffering and pain and brokenness? Like, does that say that God doesn't love me anymore? How certain can I be? And Paul wants to say, you know what? God has not crossed his fingers and hidden them behind his back when he said to you, you are just, I declare you righteous, you and me, we're all good. We're, you are right with God. He doesn't have his fingers crossed behind his back. His promises are sure, are sure and certain and good. And so Paul wants to inject his readers with hope this morning. And that's my prayer for us today. But by way of context, let's just remind ourselves where we've been. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 3, verse 20 was the bad news. And it was the need for justification. Paul there is building this compelling case against humanity that every single one of us is broken and sinful and bent and in desperate need of God's work in our lives Chapter 1 to 3 is the need for justification. Chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of chapter 3 was the way of justification. We saw that Christ has come, that he is our propitiation, the one who died in our place for our sins, that he is our redemption, the one who has paid the price to set us free, that he is the one who has reconciled us, who has brought us back to God. And then last week, Seti reminded us of Um, the example of justification in the life of Abraham, that he is justified by faith and that those who follow him are his family members, not because they have the outward sign of circumcision, but they have an inner circumcision of their hearts, that they have believed and have been justified by faith alone. And then today, as we launch into chapter five, we will see the fruit of justification in our lives. 
And so the need of justification, the way of justification, the example of justification, and the fruit of justification here in Romans chapter 5. What is it that this produces? And so I want to give us five ingredients for unshakable hope this morning. Five ingredients for unshakable hope. And the five things are this. The first is peace with God. The second is we stand in grace. The third is we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The fourth is we rejoice in our sufferings. And the fifth is we experience God's love. These are the five ingredients for unshakable hope in our lives. Because this is what Paul says. These are the fruits of being made righteous with God. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is what it means for us. This is the outworking. This is the fruit of God declaring us right. Five things that come out of this. And the first is peace with God. Come back to verse 1. Therefore, since, we've been just, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Now, peace with God is very different from the peace of God. The peace of God is that inner, steady sense of peace that we experience knowing who we are, knowing what God has done. It's an emotion. It's a feeling. Peace with God is very different. It's not an emotion. It's a relational aspect, right, that we have experienced Peace with God as a result of our reconciliation. We were once his enemies and now he has reconciled us and we have peace with him. And God's declaration, his, his verbal pronouncement that you are just, that you are not guilty, does not remain cold and distant and detached. It's relational. It's that the judge declares you not guilty and then comes off his bench and sits down and invites you to lunch and wants to be your friend. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled and we've been given a seat at the table and we are now God's friends. That's incredible. That's a fruit of being justified and a ground for hope. We have peace with God. Secondly, we stand in grace. Everyone say stand in grace. I feel like you guys are still recovering from the budget update. I'm sorry, but (laughs) stand in grace. Secondly, we stand in grace. Verse 2. Through him, we, also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Jesus has given us an invitation and that invitation grants us access to the presence of God and we stand in his throne room on the basis of grace and grace alone. Late last year, I was given an invitation to have dinner with uh, the amazing Dr. Tim Costello, the, uh, the, the um, CEO of World Vision Australia and uh, head of MICA. And uh, I got invited to go out to lunch with Dr. Costello. And at the last minute, I got a text mes- message saying, hey, the dinner plans have changed. We're now meeting in the chairman's lounge in the Qantas business lounge at the airport. And so I thought, great. I probably need to wear a coat. And so I put my sports coat on and I drove to the airport and I turned up to the business lounge and I felt very out of place because I never fly business class and I've never been into the business lounge. And there's a desk and I said to the lady, I'm here to see Dr. Costello. She said, wait one moment here. And she walked off and she came back. She said, come. And you walk through the business class lounge, which is amazing as it is. And then you get to the chairman's lounge in the business 
class lounge and it's like this private secluded area and you walk in there, there's this boardroom, it's amazing, it has, has views. And the chairman's lounge for Qantas is the chairman, the CEO of Qantas, it's his personal lounge within the business lounge. It's like the best of the best. It's like the first class section of the flight where everyone else is flying cattle class or premium economy. There's this bit, right? And we go in there and there's waiters and they, they give us any drink we want, any food we want. We can order anything we want and they will make it for us and bring it to us. And we sit there and have an amazing meeting with Dr. Castello and we eat all this food we want and then I have to go home and my access is revoked and cut off. Now that process of me being granted access and experiencing grace and favor and provision, that is exactly what Paul is saying happens to us in Christ Jesus. That we've been granted access, that we've received an invitation from Jesus himself to join him in the presence of God and to stand in grace. That's our experience. We stand in grace. We echo the psalmist who says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. We've been invited into the presence of God. We have access to God's presence. And so every day you wake up, you can remind yourself that I stand in grace. Every day that you go into your nine to five, you can remind yourself that I have access to the presence of God, that today I can experience his favor. And it's not because of what I've done. It's not because of my effort. It's not because of my works. It's because I'm standing here on the basis of grace and grace alone. We stand in grace. So firstly, we have peace with God. Secondly, we stand in grace. And thirdly, we have the hope of glory. Someone say hope of glory. You guys are getting there. Have a look at verse 2 again. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, there are different types of hope, aren't there? There's the type of hope that is very tentative. It's the type of hope that says, I hope that I get the job. Or I hope she likes me. I hope he likes me. I hope they like this meal that I've prepared for them. I hope the weather gets better for the weekend. They're all very tentative hopes. And it's, it's ex- an expression of doubt almost that we aren't certain of the events that will take place. That's one type of hope. And that's often how we use the word hope in our culture today. But there is another type of hope, and that is a Christian hope. And it is a confident certainty in the things that will come, a confident certainty in the promises of God that produces joy in us. This is the type of hope that we have as Christians. Hope is faith looking forward. It is faith in the future tense. Hope is faith, trust, working itself out. That's an exercise of faith, trust, that what God says that will happen will come to fruition. That's what Christian hope is. And it is not abiding of the nails. It is not wishful optimism. It is certain, grounded confidence that what God says will come to fruition because he has never made a promise he has not kept. We have hope. We have a future and it leads to joy for us. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so do you know your future here this morning, church? 
Do you know what your future is? Do you know the promises of God that he promises that he is a house with many rooms in it and he is preparing one of those rooms for you? Do you know that Jesus promises to make you, when you put faith in him, a co-heir with him, which means that you stand to inherit the world? Do you know that God promises to put all things right, to make all things new, and your future is a future where there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more sickness, no more tears, for the old order of things has passed away. That is your future. Do you know that God promises to cover the surface of the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, that his glory will be revealed fully and finally. At the moment, we see glimpses and hints and glimmers of his glory, but he has promised that his glory will be revealed and established and that we will experience it. That's your future. And we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you know what that means, church? It means that the best truly is yet to come. Not because tomorrow is going to be a better day than the day before, but because eternity is on the horizon for us. We can see it. We know it's coming and we don't give up because of it and we rejoice in it. You see, we don't just desire for something better as God's people. We expect it. We expect it because God has promised it and his promises are good. Now, without a future hope, without something like that on the horizon for us that is sure, that is a foundation, that is a certainty, the best we have is a clinging to the present that leads to all sorts of distortions and anxieties. It's the YOLO life that believes that you only live once, that you need to live your best life now, that you need to maximize. It's the carpe diem of our current generation And what it leads to is this deep sense of frustration, a lack of fulfillment, and anxiety about the choices that we face. That's not us. We hope in the glory of God. We are a people who know what the future looks like that leads to rejoicing in us and a deep sense of expectant hopefulness. We have joy now because of the future then. We have hope. You have a future God has promised it. So we have peace with God, number one. Secondly, we stand in grace. Thirdly, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And fourth, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Have a look at what Paul says in verse three. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. I think it's very easy for us, is it not, to walk into a season of difficulty, season of trial, circumstances of suffering and pain and to begin to question God's goodness. I mean, if we're honest, I mean, I get the flu and I'm like, God, do you still love me? You know, like man flu and I'm down and I'm out and I'm doubting God's goodness. I mean, is that anyone else? Stub your toe and you're like, God, why would this happen to me? Or the reality of much deeper issues like 
the loss of a loved one, the breakdown of a relationship, a failed pregnancy, a marriage that's falling apart, a parent or a sibling that walks away from the faith, a lack of a promotion. And we end up in a season of trial and all of a sudden the foundation that we stood on has disappeared and we begin to doubt whether or not God is for us and loves us. But here we're reminded that God is actually doing something in our suffering. If we would let him, if we would see it. You see, there's a number of different ways that we can respond to suffering, is there not? We can respond with a a, a kind of stoic response that says, suffering happens, the best I can do is just grit my teeth and get through it and bear it and hopefully get on the other side of it. Or we can respond to suffering with a martyr's response that says, you know what? I'm broken. I'm a mess. God is punishing me for this. I deserve it. Bring it on, God. Punish me. Make me suffer. And then at the end of that, then I will be acceptable to you. And then, of course, you will have to bless me because I've paid for this with my suffering. It's the martyr's response. Or there is the type of response that is totally naive and just seeks to bury its head in the sand and pretend that suffering doesn't exist. It's like the hashtag blessed life, no matter what's happening, I'm just ignoring everything that's bad. I'm just going to focus on the good in my life. And none of those are a Christian response to suffering. None of them. The stoic response, the martyr's response, the naive response are all inappropriate responses to the trials that come our way. Paul has a different way for us. He has a way that will take us on a very different journey with God than those journeys. He outlines for us a sequence of interconnected qualities that build upon the one that precedes it, that produces something in us as a result of the suffering that comes. Have a look at verse 3 again. Suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. Because without a test of our faith, there is actually nothing to endure. And so as the trial comes, we have something to test our faith. We have something to endure. And that test and that endurance actually makes us stronger people. So the endurance then leads to character. Character is formed in us. Mature character, the type of character that is tested and has proven to be good and still stands irrespective of the trial and the test. I don't know if you've met people in your life who, who by terms of their age are young, but by virtue of the suffering in their life have a depth of maturity that outstrips their youth. I was having a catch up with a young youth pastor in our city just the other week who, when he finished year 12, lost his younger sister. She passed away. Incredible grief, incredible frustration and pain for their family. And yet here is a young man who I see maturity beyond his years because he has walked through this process. He has stepped into a season of trial. That suffering has caused him to endure. That endurance has developed character in him. And he is a mature young man because of that process. That's what Paul is saying happens. So endurance leads to character. And then finally, character leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint us because it's convictions, it's promises, it's end result is sure and certain. 
Now, in a quick fix, instant world that wants to everything to go away, all of our problems to go away immediately, that we want to climb the corporate ladder immediately, that we want to finish our dreams immediately, that we want to do everything instantly, perhaps God is using the trials and the tests and the pain and the suffering in our life to develop patience and endurance and perseverance in us. Perhaps that is what we need in a quick fix world more than simple, easy solutions to our problems. It's what James says in James chapter 1, where he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Consider it pure joy. That is a profound statement. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you are mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Peter has a similar promise in Peter chapter 1. And so the brokenness and the pain of your world, your suffering and your grief is not an indication that God does not love you anymore. It is not an indication that God is punishing you. It is not an indication that God has grace that has run out and given up on you. It is not an indication that he has abandoned you. Far from it, it is actually the exact opposite. That God is using our pain for his purposes. That he is transforming us. That he is making us more like Christ, Our suffering does not erode our joy. It in fact increases our enjoyment of and anticipation of the promises and the goodness of God and the future that awaits us. A number of years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in Long Beach, California with um, close to a thousand other pastors, church planters across the world. An African-American pastor by the name of Thabiti Anyabwile was preaching and he was preaching on the place of suffering in revival and he shared this quote that literally floored the room. You could hear the audible gasps as people let this truth sink in. This is what he said about suffering and the quote is on the screen behind me. God is as sufficient with our suffering as he is with his son's blood. Your suffering, Christian, is your slave. Your suffering is working for you to produce an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so the next time suffering comes into your room, say, Welcome, my slave. Produce for me the glory that God has designed. the next time the loss of a loved one knocks on your door. Welcome, my slave. The next time a disappointment knocks on your door. Welcome, my slave. The next time a relationship failure knocks on your door. Welcome, my slave. Produce for me the glory that God has designed. All suffering is your servant. 
All suffering is a servant of your sanctification, of your Christ-likeness, of your being transformed and made into the image of Jesus. If we will see it, if we will allow God to do it, he is working in our pain with a purpose. Now, I've got to tell you, what other worldview will offer you that? What other worldview sees our pain and our brokenness through that lens? Our modern secular atheistic worldview has nothing to offer you like that. It simply offers you this. Your pain is purposeless. Get through it. Hope, tentative hopefulness that something better is on the other side. And yet here in the good news of Jesus, we have the offer of hope that is real and certain and tangible that God is working in it and that he promises in the end to deal with it fully and finally. That he will make all things new. That all pain and suffering and injustice will be dealt with. We have hope. And that means that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know that In our pain, God is working with purpose. And so my question to you this morning is, if you're facing a season of trial, if you're in a circumstance of pain and hardship, will this make you bitter or will this make you better? My question for those of you who are not in that, but it's coming in the future, will that make you bitter or will that make you better? Because God has a purpose in the midst of our pain and our suffering, if we will allow him to show it and work it in us, it's endurance, it's character, it's hope. So the fourth fruit, the fourth foundation for unshakable hope is that we can rejoice in our sufferings. The fifth is this, we experience God's love. We experience God's love. Now, Paul will go on to say here that we actually experience God's love in two ways. The first is we experience God's love subjectively by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. By his ministry to us, we experience the the love of God. Secondly, we experience the love of God objectively as we look back in history and see the defining moment of the cross. So let's have a look again at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because... God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is not stingy in giving us his love. He's got a whole lot of love to give and he pours it out with abundance. That word there for pouring out means that we have been drowned, we have been drenched, we have been covered. According to John 1, 1 John 3, that God has lavished his love upon us. That is part of the ministry of the Spirit to help you encounter and experience God's love. We should never settle for a simply cerebral understanding of God's love. The Spirit's ministry is to pour that out so that we experience it and that we know it. It is never about a a distinction between head and heart. Those two things, you can't pull them apart in the Bible. They're together. If we know God's love, we experience God's love for us because the Spirit showers us with it. We experience God's love subjectively through the ministry of the Spirit. That's what Paul will go on later to say in Romans chapter 8. He will say, part of the Spirit's ministry is to testify to your spirit that you are a child of God, that you are a son or daughter of the King. 
That's what the Spirit does in us. Now, we're not really told the mechanics of how that works, but we can kind of estimate that as we look through Scripture, that worship and prayer and Scripture reading and fasting and community and falling on our knees and surrender to God are the things that the Spirit uses to help us encounter and experience God's love. We can experience it subjectively through the ministry of the Spirit, but also objectively through the profound historical work of Jesus. Have a look at what Paul says in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul is seeking to inject hope here by saying, look, God has done the harder thing. He gave up his one and only son to die on the cross to cover your sin. He's not going to stand at the gates of heaven and say, mm, this is difficult for me. Right? He's done the hard thing. Of course he's going to do the easy thing. A number of years ago, I had a couple of mates who were members of very prestigious golf clubs. And to be a member of these golf clubs, you had to pay astronomical amounts of money to be a member annually. They paid a very large sum of money once a year. But then when they turned up to play golf on Saturday morning, they had to pay another fee, albeit much smaller. Now, if they can afford this, or let's be truth be told, if their daddies can afford that, then of course then it can afford to pay the $15 fee to play the golf on the Saturday morning. They've paid the big one. The, the smaller one is easy. That's Paul's argument here. God has done the big thing. Of course he can do the small thing. God has done the hard thing. Of course he can do the easy thing. It is done. We don't need to doubt whether or not Jesus' death on, our, on the cross in our place was sufficient for us to have confidence and hope for us to be welcomed and accepted by God. The hard thing has been done. Of course, God will do the easy thing. And so as we walk into a season of pain or trial, or perhaps that lies ahead, the chief way of knowing whether or not God loves you is not to let your circumstances be your guide. It is not to let your emotions be your litmus test. It is not to let your pain be the thing that determines whether or not God loves you. It is to cast your mind back to Calvary to remind yourself of what God has done for you. Because in that moment, at your worst, God gave his best. God could not possibly have loved you any more than he did when he gave his one and only son to die. He's given you everything. So of course now, in a circumstance of trial, in difficulty, in pain, that counts. That doesn't go away when we experience pain in our life. But hope shifts our perspective. It shifts our perspective forward and it shifts our perspective back and it grounds us in the realities of the cross that what Jesus has done for us is the proof, historical, unambiguous evidence that God loves you. 
even on your worst day, God loves you. Even in your darkest moments, God loves you. Proof? He gave his one and only son. Jesus climbed upon the cross. That innocent lamb of God had his blood shed and gave his life for you. You want to know that God loves you today? Look back. See what God has done. A couple of weeks ago, we started watching that classic movie with our kids, uh, Little Rascals. Families in the house, if you're looking for some good, clean children's family, family viewing, Little Rascals is great. And there is a scene in that movie where Alfalfa is sitting at the clubhouse holding a flower and peeling the petals off it and saying, she loves me. He's wondering if Dala loves him. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. Now you know you never have to do that with God. You never have to wonder. You never have to doubt. You never have to pull the petals off life experiences, hoping against circumstance that God loves you because he has told us that he loves us. He has demonstrated that he loves us. And he has done it conclusively. I believe there are some people here this morning who need to be reminded that God loves them. Some of you who are wrestling with your assurance and are unsure whether or not God will keep you. Hear the promise of God that he promises never to let go of those who are his. Some of you are here this morning and you feel entirely unlovable because of the things that you have done even in this past week. Hear the promises of God that he has forgiven you, that he has loved you all the way to the cross. Some of you are here this morning and you have lost hope because of your pain, because of your circumstance, because of the darkness of this world. Hear the promises of God that our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That he has promised to make all things new. That we can have hope that is unshakable. As I close this morning, I want to close with Paul's own prayer, his, his own words, his prayer for the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, Paul prays this. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The prayer is that we would overflow with hope, that we would be gushing with hope. If there is anyone in this world who has, who has the fortitude, who has the capacity to believe against the circumstances, to believe against the hopelessness, to not settle, it's us. Because we see the horizon, we know what's ahead, we know God's promises are sure, we look back, we see the cross. We are the people of hope. And Paul's prayer is that we would abound and overflow with hope. That's my prayer for every single person here this morning. It's God's prayer for you. And so I want to pray along the lines of that prayer this morning as we transition to response. Now I want to pray that that would be true of us, that we would indeed be people of hope. 
But before we get there, we're going to we're going to pause and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Stations to the right and left down the front and in the middle of the room have bread and grape juice on them. These are elements, symbols that, that remind us that God loves us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, if you worship him, this meal is for you. Come forward, come to the sides, take the bread, dip it in the grape juice, eat it and remember, God loves you. God loves me. That's what this meal is for. So if that's you, please participate in that meal together. Our prayer team will be up the back. They would love to pray for you. If you have any need this morning, if you're wrestling with circumstances of pain and darkness and difficulty, if you have something coming up this week, our prayer team would love to pray for you. Please do not leave here this morning without letting them minister to you. And finally, we're responding in our giving. The giving containers are going to come around is an opportunity for you to exercise your faith and trust in Jesus to give. If you're a visitor with us, then this is not for you. Please let those buckets pass you by. You can put your Connect card, your pencil in that, or you can head to the Connect desk and do that afterwards. But I'm going to invite us to stand to church as we respond now in worship and prayer. So let me pray for us together. Father God, I want to thank you that you are a God of hope. I thank you that as we think about your promises, we need not bite our nails. We need not be merely optimistic, but we can be confident and certain and assured of what you have promised. God, I pray for every person here this morning who needs to be fueled and filled with hope. God, would your hope abound this morning? Would you lift our eyes from our circumstances, lift our eyes from our pain, lift our eyes from a world that is reeling in hopelessness? Focus them on the horizon of our future. Give us the eyes of faith to see what lies ahead and to live now in light of that. Help us to be a people who would abound and overflow with hope that a watching world would see what we have and yearn for it and long for it and desire it and receive it in Christ. God, I pray that you would minister to every single person here today by the power of your spirit, that we would experience and encounter your love for us. We want to walk out of these doors radically changed people. So work, Holy Spirit, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.